Good morning, everybody. Uh, we're glad that you're here with us. Um, I'm excited to get into the Word with you today. Um, and today, I wore my shirt for this. Oh, yeah. Today we're talking about Satan. How often do you get to go to church and hear that opener? Uh, in fact, this morning I was wearing this shirt, uh, this sweet shirt, and uh, which I don't often wear, actually. Uh, you get some interesting responses in the world around you. Um, and uh, my uh, daughter came down, woke up to get breakfast, and she goes, not today, Santa. What's wrong with Santa? What's your deal with Santa? Why would I wear a not today Santa shirt? So then she uh, looked again and yeah, I guess that's that e-learning stuff we're doing these days. Pretty exciting. Um, I am excited today because I think this is a topic that um, uh, is, is interesting, uh, but also I think uh, when we really start thinking about uh, uh, who Satan is and, and uh, the devil and uh, those things, I. I think it pushes us towards remembering how good Christ is. And so that's my, uh, that's my, um, uh, yeah, that's my hope today. Um, I wanted to, uh, uh, yeah, just get us going here. We, we've been doing a series in Job. Uh, we've been going through Job and then we hit Easter and, uh, some questions come up from Job. So some things happen, uh, in Job where we actually see, uh, this figure come up called the Satan or Satan. And he, um, has this interaction with God and it, it brings up questions. Who is this Satan? Have we seen him before? And what does that look like? And culturally that's Satan, the devil. Those things are things that pop up, um, all around us. And so, um, I want to just give an opportunity to not just, um, learn who that is because of what we've seen around us, but actually look at scripture and, uh, and see what that is. And so, um, we're going to, we're going to dive into that, um, today. That's my hope. Uh, to start us off, we're, we're going to start uh, in a moment here uh, with a passage. Uh, and I actually had a friend read this passage for us. So uh, we have a little special guest here, Zach uh, Rogers, straight from his, I assume, bedroom. Uh, he uh, sent us a, a video here of him reading this passage from Genesis 3, which is our first moment that we actually see um, this, this figure move into history. And so we're going to check out, Zach's going to read this for us. No. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Thanks, Zach, uh, for that reading of God's word. And I guess I didn't properly introduce Zach and his mustache. Uh, thanks for the reading of God's word. Uh, it's cool, actually. Really cool to have you um, with us reading that passage. I had an experience, before we jump right into this passage, um, experience in college when I was studying. Uh, I was had the opportunity to study... Uh, different religious groups. Um, and uh, one of the things that I got to do was meet with different people uh, that, that worship different things or didn't worship anything. Um, and one of those was I got to meet with a person who uh, was, was a leader in the uh, satanic church or the, the Satanist movement. 
uh, around where I lived and I didn't know what to expect. So I went to meet with this person and I just kind of expected, I, I don't know, it to be scary. I don't know what I uh, thought because I didn't really know except for in movies what people who claim to be Satan worshipers uh, actually look like. And I thought maybe he'd have like a long black cloak and he would like yell at me and I don't know, attack me. I don't know. Um, and he was just a normal, he's actually a businessman in town and um, he actually had grown up in the church and had felt a call uh, from a spiritual thing and realized he felt, felt like that call um, was a, uh, you know, was from Satan. And so when I met with him, I got to ask, why would you, why would you do this? It seems uh, not just uh, unpopular, but it seems it'd be hard to tell friends and do, do people not want to talk to you and these things. And he said, you know what? I had a moment in my life that I realized um, two really important things. And so uh, that, that is why I follow Satan. And he said, I, I want to have a lot of fun and do what I want to do and, and uh, do the most pleasurable things and the most exciting things. And if I follow, um, if I follow Jesus, I don't think I can do that. He seems to kind of be a buzzkill. So I'm gonna follow Satan because that seems like I get to do whatever I want. And also, um, then when I do die, and then I go to hell, um, then I I think Satan will make me like one of his managers, like a middle manager. Like literally a middle management from hell or in hell, right? Like he uh, really thought if he'd get put in charge of things. So he thought, well, you know what? If I, if I worship Satan now, then one day when I'm in hell, Satan will say, thanks for your worship. I won't torture you. You'll get to help me torture other people. So as we got to talk more, I, I got to understand where that came from where he even heard those. I said, I'm curious where you got those ideas from. And I think this is really helpful uh, to share because we, um, I think a lot of us might have a similar view of, of what hell looks like or what Satan looks like or who Satan is or the devil or here's other words, Beelzebub, Lucifer, the king of hell. There's actually references uh, historically in, in writings that Satan would be called the left-handed one. Um, sorry for those who are left-handed, but I mean, it's written down. Um, they, all, all these words for this thing, and culturally throughout all different cultures, there's, there tends to be this arch enemy of, the, of whoever the good God is or the, the good spiritual thing. There's this battle between the two things, uh, good and bad, right? There's this dualism of good and bad, and so we see this um, throughout our culture. And so uh, I'm going to use, I'm excited, I got some pictures here. We see kind of different ways that I think that I, I know I have felt about Satan. Um, and so we see those things pop up uh, kind of throughout our culture. Things like, um, let me see here, like this idea that Satan is this uh, red dude who's horned, who has a pitchfork, and he's in hell ruling over hell. Or we have this uh, idea that there's kind of this good and bad. There's a picture of Santa Claus, speaking of Santa, and Krampus, which is this kind of uh, symbolism, this personification, this uh, idea that, that Santa and Krampus would go through the streets and good kids would get gifts from Santa and bad kids would get thrown into a sack with Krampus and he would take them off. Um, and so there's always this good and bad. There's almost these equals that uh, one brings good stuff if you're good and one brings bad stuff if you're bad. And so Satan just becomes like the, he's the he's the bad guy, so don't do bad things or he'll take care of you. He's the bad cop and, and God is the good 
uh, cop in that sense, right? We see these little images of of uh, from Legos to kids' toys to kids' movies, right? Satan is the image of a devil or a Satan is all over the places. They often can be cute, right? There's little red guy with his pitchfork and it's everywhere, right? We This this symbolism, this isn't a, a thing that you would mention and a friend would say, oh, I'm not, I don't read my Bible. I don't know what you're talking about if I say um, the devil. And so my, my hope today is to take us through a couple moments, stories in history and scripture, and just see as we go through them, uh, what do we learn about who this Satan is um, throughout scripture and not just from cartoons I watched as a kid or from literature that I've read, but what does scripture say about who Satan is? And I would hope, my hope is at the end we'll be quite encouraged uh, about how good Jesus is and how thankful I am for Christ uh, and maybe um, be a less consumed or even uh, maybe a little more concerned with what Satan's doing. But I pray this would give us a healthy um, place in there. So the first passage we're going to look at is this passage that Zach read for us. Um, in Genesis 3. Um, up till now, Genesis 1 and 2 is this great story of how God has created things out of chaos, out of darkness, out of nothingness. He's brought order and light and somethingness to all things. Everythingness to all things. So he goes from chaos to order, right? And he goes from darkness to light. He creates this beautiful garden for his people to be in. And in fact, at the center of this garden, he puts two people that are in his image, that are his family, they get to tend the garden and work the garden. They get to enjoy all of creation together with no death, no darkness, only walking with God, enjoying creation, and most importantly, enjoying the creator of creation. God asked them to do one thing. He um, asked them not to do one thing, that in the center of the garden, there's a tree. And he says, as an opportunity to show obedience and love to him, he's asked them, please don't eat from that tree. Everything else is yours. And this is where our story picks up and what Zach read for us. And this is Genesis 3.1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animals the Lord had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? A couple of important things here. It says that this serpent uh, was uh, this wild animal that was created by God and is crafty. Actually, the word crafty is not necessarily a negative word. That word's used in other places to describe people who are really smart with their strategies, with what's going on. They're very observant. They understand people around them. And so he, he's a, a, a smart animal that uh, was made by God. And he comes up to the woman uh, who's, who's God's creation and his image. And he says, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now we at this point we don't know that the serpent is uh, against God or is gonna is a symbol or this image of of uh, like God's adversary. But later we learn this in Scripture that uh, this image of a serpent, a snake, or a dragon, or a beast that's coming out of a sea that's turbulent and chaotic. This imagery is often connected to um, to the Satan or the, the Satan. And so often in scripture, actually, we hear the phrase, the Satan, which actually this, I think this is really cool. Um, in scripture, we don't actually often or ever get a proper name for this person, this creature. We say Satan, we say the devil, and we give him a proper title. 
And in scripture, I think this is sweet, uh, God never gives him a proper name. He just says the adversary, or we hear the liar, or the deceiver, or the chaos bringer. Words that just mean that. They're just a word that means, in fact, we hear the word adversary used in scripture to describe godly people. We'll say, David is going to battle someone, and they'll say, David is a Satan to those people. Um, he's an adversary. So it's interesting here, the serpent that comes up is our first look at this adversary, this enemy of God. And what he's doing is he is first asking a question, um, which will quickly, we'll see, uh, move to something else, but will plant something in, uh, in people's heads that maybe God isn't exactly who he is. Did God really say to you, you must not eat from this tree? And so it goes on. The woman says to the serpent, you may eat fruit from the you may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it, or you will die. So God said you can eat all the trees except this one. If you touch that one, you will die. That's true. Um, and so she's almost responding to him, saying, "Oh, oh no, no, no! Um, you're making it sound like God says we don't get anything. No, actually, we get all the trees, just this one." Um, and he says now, instead of asking questions, he gets to the point, you will not certainly die. So he's now gone from just asking questions that might uh, move someone towards away from God, but he's now asking, he's now just saying a lie. Well, yeah, a lie. <laughs> you will not certainly die. The serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So there's the heart there's the mission of, of God's adversary. Satan's mission, his, his, he shows his cards here for all, all, throughout all of time until we're going to read in Revelation what happens. His mission statement is to make people want to be gods or move people away from the worship of God. It, in the end, whatever his tactics are, are, are to move people away from being worshipers of God. And so uh, people do decide to eat the fruit. They are deceived and think maybe we don't need God. Maybe we can be God ourselves. And so they take the fruit and eat it. Um, and God comes and looks for them. They're actually hiding from God now, no longer with God. Uh, they're actually like ashamed now. There's no shame on them. They're, they're wearing clothes. Uh, their nakedness brings shame. All, all these dark things start coming in. All these creation almost is unraveling. It seems like a goal, a mission of Satan is to unravel this creation. And so in verse 14, we see this. So God said to the serpent, he comes and he shares how each of them has been cursed because of disobedience. And he says to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all wild animals. You will crawl in your belly and you'll eat dust all of your days. If that's not enough, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This phrase, he will crush his, your head and you will strike his heel is what um, uh, in theological terms, people will call the proto-evangelium, uh, the, the first gospel, right? So this is cool. So uh, people turn from God, sin, the shame, the weight of that comes on them. And one of the first things God says to his people, to Satan is that, um, yeah, this, this has happened. Um, and, and 
Women are going to continue to have generations of people and their offspring are going to give birth to a man and that man is going to die on a cross and he's going to crush your head. You're going to be crushed by the offspring of these people that you turned against me. And we see that, right? This is the first time we get, he, he calls it right in the beginning here that at one point you might get a bite on his heel, but he's going to crush your head. And so the rest of scripture, we get to see that played out. And that is what we're excited to look at um, as we fast forward through these moments of where we've seen the Satan, the adversary pop up. Um, there's lots of Old Testament. We see moments of him kind of being this shadowy figure behind people as, as they make choices that are to turn away from God. We see this in the story of Babylon as they build a tower to try to, to reach God, to be God. Um, we see this character... Uh, the adversary behind those people. And so that continues, right? He continues to do his work. And we even see in Job as we've just been going through, I encourage you to go back, check out those sermons on our podcast or website. Um, uh, we see Satan in that moment pop up and he's an adversary. He's questioning if God's people actually love God for God or just because God does good stuff for them. He pops up throughout these, these history. Um, and so we see this happen even his boldness uh, to the point of moving towards Jesus himself. And so Jesus is born in the beginning of Matthew. We see he's born uh, in the beginning of all the gospels. He's born and he grows up and at a point in his life, he becomes he gets baptized, making this uh, public declaration of the beginning of his ministry. And one of the first things Jesus does is he goes into the wilderness. And in, and in Matthew 4, we hear this. Then Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The word, the word devil here is um, kind of the Greek word for the word Satan. And so in the Old Testament, we get Hebrew, it's written in Hebrew. And so we hear the, the Satan is the word, the adversary. And then in Greek, the word that's used is, is uh, like close to Diablo, right? Or Diablo. It's like a, a word for the same, a liar or a slanderer, a deceiver, an adversary. And so we just get this new word, uh, which really means the same thing. He's tempted by the devil. Jesus, God himself, who came to earth, goes into the wilderness. His first thing he does, the spirit has brought him to the wilderness, and he, and, and Satan has the audacity to move towards God himself and tempt him. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, it says Jesus was hungry. So he sees an opportunity. And so uh, he's baptized, he's in the wilderness, he's hungry. God's own son, and Satan comes to him. The tempter, verse 3, came to him and said, Are you the son of God? Tell these stones to become bread. So he says, Hey, you're hungry? You're the son of God? Use your power to make these stones become bread and eat them. And Jesus says, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So Jesus says, no, I'm not just going to just turn stones to bread as you command me. Then the devil took him to a holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. Now, imagine this. They're together. They're on the top of the temple. And he says, you are the son of God. Throw yourself down. So now he's like saying, yeah, if you are the son of God, just throw yourself down. Because here, Satan actually quotes scripture here. He says, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. He's tempting Jesus to turn 
what it doesn't matter what it is, just away from his trust in who God is and his provision in who God is. And say, hey, throw, throw yourself down and see if those angels actually do this. Almost like it almost feels a little bit like Job. Hey, let's do this and see if God actually is there for you. And then he's Jesus says, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. So <laughs> Jesus says, yeah, that is written, but he's, it also is written that we shouldn't put God to this. Again, Jesus knows his scripture because um, he wrote it again. And then uh, in verse eight, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will just bow down and worship me. So he's kind of subtle in the beginning. Just turn from God, believe in your, your physical provision. You can provide for yourself. You don't need God the father. He says, no, hey, let's test God to see if he really is going to protect you and your, your safety and your comfort and your security. No, no, no. I, I can trust God in that. And now he just says, you know what? I just want you to worship me. Just worship me and I'll give you all of this. You don't even have to do anything. You don't need to come here and serve people and love people. I will just give you all of these things if you worship me, which really means he won't have anything, right? And Jesus knows that he says, away from me, Satan. For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Satan gets to the point, gets to his mission, just says, okay, I just want you to worship me. And Jesus says, that is not what we were created for. Worship the Lord your God only. Then the devil leaves him. He must have, okay, I guess I'm not going to get this guy. And angels came and they did attend to Jesus um, and cared for him. So again, the devil's boldness in this. His mission is to turn people from God. His mission isn't to, to build an army uh, of people to serve him in hell somewhere. Um, this isn't, uh, we're going we're gonna to see soon what that actually looks like, how that actually plays out for him. His mission isn't uh, to, to battle Jesus in this battle royale forever and ever and ever and, and hope that, that he comes out on top. His mission is just to... <laughs> just to turn uh, our, our gaze away from God to anything else. Um, even if that thing feels religious and godly away from that. And in this, he tried it with Jesus. It didn't seem to work. Way to go, Jesus. The, the problem for me is that I'm not Jesus and you are not Jesus. Um, uh, and so what does this look like in the life of other people? We see Jesus then go on in the, in the Gospels to do these amazing things and surely has power over all things, nature um, and, and healing and illness and actually uh, uh, demons and uh, you know, Satan's like realm. His, um, he, he does have this army of, of spiritual beings that are trying to get us to turn away from God and turn to anything but God. And he, he goes into villages and communities and he casts out these demons. He his power says, get out of these people and leave these people alone so they could turn to him. And we see all these people, we see whole like villages turn to worship Jesus as they see his power in there. Um, and, and so we see it happen with Jesus. He actually sends out his disciples at one point. Uh, and they, they, there's a story of them coming back and saying, hey, we couldn't figure out how to cast out um, demons. We tried everything. And he said, well, did you pray? Did you rely on my power in that? So we see that Jesus's power um, can do that. Uh, and I want to take us to a story of where we see um, the devil pursue someone, uh, and it's and it's a tragic story. Um, 
And um, I think it gives us some insight into what it looks like and how important it is for us to understand um, what that means to not turn our gaze away, not, not to fall in and, and believe in the mission of Satan. And so we're going to look at the story of Judas. And so if you look in, in Luke 22, um, we get this moment uh, uh, where it actually talks about Satan entering Judas. Let's look at Luke 22. Now the festival of unleavened bread called Passover was approaching. Passover is a time when Jesus came in. We just celebrated at Easter when Jesus came into town um, and they were celebrating the Passover when death passed over God's people in an Exodus story. It was called Exodus and it was or, uh, Passover and it was approaching. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus. So these leaders wanted to get rid of Jesus for they were afraid of the people. So they were afraid they couldn't just arrest him because people would, would um, you know, there'd be riots. Then, listen, this is wild. Then Satan entered Judas, or, or entered, can you me, became among him, became with him. He entered Judas, called Iscariot. This is Judas, one of the 12 disciples of Jesus, one of the 12. Judas went to the chief priests and the officers. So his first, his first thing after Satan enters him, he goes to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard. And discuss with them how they might how he might betray Jesus. So he says, "I'm going to turn away from Jesus. I'm going to betray him and turn him over to you so that you can take him." They were delighted and they agreed to give him money. So he went to them and they discussed and they paid him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. So what they needed was someone, an inside person, who could uh, help turn Jesus over to them when there weren't people around so that crowds wouldn't become upset. They had just they would just have cheered for him when he came into town. This is Jesus, our king, who's going to rescue us and save us. And they need someone who can secretly help them arrest Jesus so that they can get rid of this Jesus guy. He's, he's affecting uh, their economy and their living because he's saying that God goes through him and doesn't have, you don't have to pay these pre high priests um, to do rituals for you or you don't have to, you know, the, um, yeah, they, they no longer would be needed for your relationship with God in that way. And so they go to Judas. It says Satan entered Judas. Now that seems like a scary thing. That makes that would make me very concerned. It does if I would say, uh, so I could just be like hanging out with friends and then whoop, like Satan enters me and then I go get money and betray a friend or like, are we all just always in danger of Satan entering us like, and controlling us. Um, I want us to look at Judas a little bit more to understand what's happening here and what that really maybe means or looks like. So before this, we look in John 12 and we see a little moment with Judas and we actually see this happen a few times in the Gospels. Sometimes they're actually kind of strange. You think, why would that be mentioned. And I think this is part of why they're mentioned. So we get a, uh, a taste of who Judas really is. So this is a moment when uh, Jesus had just raised uh, Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus had died. Jesus raised him from the dead. His sisters are so thrilled. Everyone is amazed. This is so cool. And, and they're so um, encouraged by this um, that Jesus, uh, one of Lazarus's sisters actually come to Jesus um, and they, she anoints him with this expensive perfume as a thank you, as kind of a, a way to say, you are king, I worship you, I, uh, I believe who you are. So this is a, 
really cool moment. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, interesting, like they give us, they give that away, objected. So she comes with this expensive perfume. I want to pour this perfume on Jesus. I want to uh, give this expensive thing away. And Judas's response is not, how cool is that? We watched Lazarus be resurrected. She's feeling that. She's so overwhelmed, so so excited. She's responding to that by, by turning to Jesus, worshiping him. And Judas says, who's later to betray him, I object. Why wasn't this perfume sold? And the money given to the poor, we that was a waste of, of money. His, his thought is this, he has kind of a economy of money. So the way things work around him all goes through his filter of, wow, that money could have been used. And actually, and here he says something honorable. It could have been given to the poor. That was a waste. It was worth a year's wages. She spent perfume on Jesus that's worth a year wages. This seems silly, right? He did not say this because he cared about the poor. The, before that sentence, I would say, man, Judas is thinking, was this the best use of our money? We could have helped the poor. And John clarifies. He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, because he was a thief. As a keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So John gives us a moment to say, Judas's heart at this point, and we see him before this and after this, He's thinking, how could I get money? And then some of that money in the money bag from the, all the disciples, I can take some of that for myself. So, so this money uh, this money that she's wasting, he thinks is wasting, uh, could have been mine. And I think this is evidence that he was, money was a thing that he, I, I don't know if money is what he worships as much as whatever the hope is that money would bring him, Right? Money seemed to be where his hope laid. It probably wasn't really coins that he's worshiping, but what they could bring him, right? In comfort or power or the security that money can bring. And so he, all of his decisions were based in this economy of funds, money, and how can that get me what I want? And so we see that play out. And he's willing to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. He's willing to say, if hope comes in the form of coins that I can use to buy things, that I need to do whatever it takes to get more of those things and to move towards those things. And we're going to see how tragic this economy that he has, that I think that Satan, as he's entered him, uh, he, he already was worshiping, not necessarily Jesus, and Satan took that opportunity, as, as he does in people's lives, to enter him and to fuel that, I think, view of that economy. He, in a sense, becomes Judas's economics professor and says, yes, that is the way to hope, is to get that those funds. What happens then we see in Matthew 27 is he does betray Jesus. Jesus is arrested. Jesus then, he sits for that night thinking about, I just gave Jesus over. He's innocent. I've seen him heal people. I've seen him do miraculous things. And for 30 pieces of silver, I just gave that man's life over to these people. And so in, in uh, Matthew 27, we see his response. When Ju Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse. And he returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. 
I have sinned, he said, for I betrayed innocent blood. He was seized with remorse. That phrase means he's like almost paralyzed with this weight of the sin that has come on him. That word remorse there um, is an interesting uh, moment because this is when we see, did he actually repent? Which is the word we use, the change of a heart, actually turn from the one worship to Jesus, right? The opposite of what Satan is hoping for him to do. He wants us to turn away, but he is repenting, actually turning. This word remorse is actually a word used just for deep, deep sadness for your actions. So here's the, here's the really tragic part. He has a moment where he realizes Jesus is innocent. I've taken money to hand him over. What can I do to relieve this weight and this shame that's on top of me, this sin that I feel, what do I do to relieve this? And he still is functioning in his same economy. And so he says, I must just give the money back and that will make it right. I, I got I to do something with that. So actually he tries to give it back to the, uh, the, high, the chief priests and the elders. And uh, they say, what is that to us? It's your responsibility. So he throws it in the temple and he leaves. And he goes away and he hangs himself. It's tragic. It's terrible. His response to the weight of his sin is to try to continue to shift the money around to, to feel the relief of that shame and, and guilt and that sadness almost in a way he throws it into the temple to God, here, here's money. Does this make this right? Because he's still functioning in that system. I got to just do things to make it right. This is before Jesus is even crucified. He could have turned, literally walked to Jesus and said, I was wrong and I want to be with you and follow you. And in that, I think Satan has found this way to just twist enough that that Judas still believes the way things work is through this funding, through these coins. His sadness of his sin leads him to take his life, which is terrible. He realized what was happening to Jesus, the weight of the sin was so heavy. And in that moment, uh, he had the opportunity to turn to Jesus. And he continued to turn to the same things he knew. Satan is a liar. And Judas paid the price for that. The economy of, of life for him was in money. In order to get comfort and deserve. And what he deserved, he thought that was in his money. But no matter how hard we work, in the economics of life, there's only one way that we can relieve that weight of the sin on us, and that is to turn to Jesus. That is the whole story of the gospel, is that we feel that weight and that guilt, and we turn to him for rest and relief. Uh, we see this in uh, Ephesians. We're going to 
continue to move as we uh, get to the end here of our time uh, into Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6 is a well-known uh, passage, especially when you're like a kid, because uh, this is the passage about the armor of God. You always like make cardboard versions of like armor and swords and you know, and helmets and stuff. And um, I love this because it literally is saying, what does it take to fight the schemes of the devil? So Ephesians 6, we hear, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Put on this armor of God so that you can stand against the liar, the slanderer, the adversary of God's schemes. So Satan's going to come. He's going to come after us to turn our worship away, to, to twist our worship so we might think, oh, I'm still kind of faithful to God, but but it changed this kind of economy that we think is the way the world works. He says, wear this armor for our struggles, not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Our real battle is, is against these dark forces, these evil forces. And how do we fight against them? How do we go on the offensive? He says, therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. So when Satan comes, we can stand our ground. And what does that look like? He says, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. Who is truth? Jesus. Where does the truth come from? Jesus, with the breastplate of righteousness in place. Where does our righteousness come from? Jesus, with your feet fitted with readiness that comes from the gospel peace. Gospel peace, that good news comes from Jesus. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith. With that, you can extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. As Satan is shooting his arrows, the lies, the slander, hold the shield of faith. Who brings us our faith? God, Jesus, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. We have the word of God in our hands. Jesus, we look to Jesus because he fulfills all these. Where does our salvation come from? Jesus. So we put on Jesus to fight the devil. So it, it's not, I need to, read a lot of scripture and then the devil can't touch me. I need to be a good person. The devil can't touch me. I need to make sure I really believe there is a God. The, the devil can't touch me. I got to make sure that I'm really peaceful. I'm at peace with whatever skills and whatever uh, meditations I can learn. Uh, but in all of that, the one we look to is Jesus, 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 your best, and our only defense is Jesus. No offense against the schemes of the devil other than Jesus, knowing our gospel. And that, that brings the question, who is fighting with us? Not just knowing the gospel, but that gospel in a community, right? Where we fight together, that friends remind me, hey, that actually isn't the gospel. That isn't the good news, your economy is off. We get to ask the questions, who are our economics professors? Who's reminding you of actually how things work? Who are, what is your economics textbook? How does the economics of this world and your life actually work? Teaching us the ways of life and death. Do you get together in study groups with people and be reminded of how the economy of life and death actually works? 
we have this great opportunity God's given us to remind ourselves over and over and over to put on the armor of God, which is clothing ourselves with Christ. And here's how this all ends. Satan comes. This, this could feel overwhelming. This could feel, uh, we could wear our not today Satan shirts and say, yeah, Satan, not today, but he still is coming at us. And I think it's so important not only to know we can put on Jesus and fight this good fight, but to know how this all ends. There is no flaming pit that Satan has a throne and that he has his middle management and they're running the show and you go there and he tortures you depending on the level of sin you've had. Here's what happens to Satan. In Revelation 12, we get a picture of the future. Here's what happens. Uh, in, in Revelation 12, 7, then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. There's a word for Satan. And the, the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back. So this is, this is the, the adversary and his army are fighting against God and his army, but he was not strong enough. And they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent called the devil or Satan. So we see all these names in this one passage who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. This battle starts and they aren't strong enough. They get thrown to earth. And in Revelation 20, this battle continues. We hear all this amazing imagery of this battle between God and Satan, this dragon, the snake, this devil, this adversary. And in 12, in verse, uh, in chapter 20, Revelation 20, we hear how this ends up. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. So Satan's army marches in, but fire came down from heaven and devoured him. Here's how this battle went. Armies came together and there was weeks and weeks of battle that led to months of battle that you never knew who was going to win. No, they came to his city and they were devoured, gone. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet have been thrown. They'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. He's devoured. He's overcome. He's defeated. He's destroyed. He has no power. There's no place where Satan rules and God rules. There's no duality in this fight against good and evil forever and ever and ever. Here's where I think for myself, I find this. I sometimes put God and Satan in this sort of two-party system, right? And then we're trying to vote on who actually wins, the adversary or God, who gets to be president of all things of the universe. We're waiting to see how many people vote Jesus, how many people vote for Satan? Maybe there's like a third party there that takes votes away from God to help Satan win. And you're like, oh, I hope not, I hope not too many people vote for Satan because then he wins all of it. In the end, God, God has created all things. And Satan is trying to uncreate those things. Jesus comes to die on a cross to defeat sin and Satan and death. And he does not have power over us. Satan has been defeated and God will continue to be in rule on his throne now and forever until that day he comes and makes things right. God has never been out of control. Satan never gets close to taking over his presidency of the universe. There will be a day when all this suffering will end and all who call upon the name of Jesus will be rescued. They'll all just turn to him. There's not projections that are going to come out about how this election will turn out or how this sports season will end. I hope 
I hope our team wins or who will be victorious. I think God has a good chance, but we got to watch out for that underdog, Satan. We know exactly how this ends and how it has always ended. That Satan will never win, has never won. And in fact, Jesus has already won and brings us with him. And as we end here, I want to read to you uh, this passage. Right after Satan is defeated, here is what we learn in Revelation 21. The garden is brought back. That I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. Sounds a lot like the garden. But now it's a city. They will be, he will be with his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. There's a day when all things are made right, where sadness doesn't exist and pain doesn't exist and tears don't exist. This old order will pass away, including Satan and any influence he has. So as we end this, I want to read a quote from C.S. Lewis. Um, he writes a book I encourage you to, to read, uh, maybe in sections. It gets a little dark, called The Screwtape Letters, where he actually, uh, he's found these letters between these demons and how they are interacting, how they're actually uh, very sneakily turning people away from worship of God. And he has this, this is the opening of the book. He says, there's two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils how we see Satan. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. So we can say that there is no Satan. That's not a thing. And then we're vulnerable to attacks. And we're not ready. We don't arm ourselves with Jesus to fight. We're not on the offensive, right? But we also can have this excessive and unhealthy interest in him. Satan has mentioned a small percentage of the Bible. And again, the whole of scripture is about our God and how good he is. The book of Job isn't about Job. It's about how good our God is. And so at the, if nothing else, we need to remember it's all about Jesus and our God and how good he is and how much he loves us and cares for us and moves towards us. And if anything else, to have an excessive interest in Jesus that is what's going to bring us peace and joy and comfort when that weight of sin is on us. So as we move to a time of communion here, if you want to grab your communion supplies, we're going to celebrate that. That Jesus, I have a few things I want us to consider as we reflect now and take some time to pray. I want you to consider how do you view Satan, um, the devil? Do you, do you, maybe is it too excessive? Maybe it's not at all. How do you see him play into your life? And do you know that Jesus has won that battle? Where have you also felt like maybe you've been deceived or tempted to turn from God. And where do you turn? What are those things that you feel might shift historically in your life? Where are those things that have turned? Those are really helpful to continue to assess in your life. Where do I turn? And what economy of life do you believe in? How does the world work? How, what, and does that really work? Does that make sense? Is that for me? Is that, is that from scripture, God's word? 
And I encourage you to think, who are your economics professors and classmates? Who are those who are helping you understand how that works? And lastly, as I always want to encourage you, who do you know who needs to know that Satan has lost and that there's victory in Jesus? Right now, it feels like uh, we're losing at times. So I don't even know what, but it just feels like we're losing. And it is so good to remember that we have won. And in Christ, that victory means one day all things will be made new and right. And so who else needs to know that Jesus is one. He is victorious.